On Monday, the 23rd of November, 1654, Blaise Pascal had a religious experience that would completely shift the rest of his life. Pascal was arguably one of the greatest minds of the 16th century in mathematics and philosophy, but after this experience, <clears throat> he would direct the rest of his life, which was only about four or five years after this, solely, almost entirely, to writing about God. And we know exactly when this experience happened, because when Pascal had died, they found him with a note sewed into the um, interior of his jacket that it looked like would also be shifted from jacket to jacket, depending on what he was wearing. And the note described this experience that he had had. And obviously it was something so profound that he wanted to have it with him always. And the note read, The Year of Grace, 1654, Monday, 23rd of November, from about half past ten at night until about half past midnight. Fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God, your God will be my God, forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. He is only found by the ways taught in the gospel, grandeur of the human soul. Righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. Joy, 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 tears of joy. Something clearly gripped Pascal so much on this night that it completely shifted his view of God and then the trajectory of the rest of his life. Now, I don't believe that we all need an ecstatic vision or some sort of experience like this, but we most certainly all need a right revelation of a holy God that would lead to the same reverence. We need to be gripped by a right understanding of our supremely majestic God that sometimes may come in God's providence by a divine experience. But what we certainly know is that the normative means for God to give this is by revealing His holiness to us through His Word as the Spirit illuminates the fullness of God's holiness to us. We need to have this right understanding of a supremely majestic and holy God so that our lives would be marked by reverence. This is important because for the most part, we are an irreverent culture. We applaud irreverence. Comedians make they're living by traveling around the world doing shows full of irreverence and hundreds of thousands of people flock to them to have a night of irreverence to enjoy that. Even on streaming platforms now, we have categories along with drama and romance and action. There are categories called irreverence. A whole bunch of shows where if you want some irreverence, then you can delight yourself in it. We no longer see the deep level of respect in our society that marks reverence. 
even for people in places of authority where generations ago, regardless of what you thought of the person, you would have still had a level of deep respect for the prime minister, for that place of authority. But that is almost non-existent in our day. And this is especially the case toward God and his church, a severe irreverence in the world, but also amongst those who profess to be Christians. A.W. Tozer wrote on this 80 years ago, talking about the church of his day and warning against this irreverence. And he says of the church, we try to achieve communion with God by divesting him of his burning holiness and unapproachable majesty. He says, we have tried to achieve communion with our holy God by stripping him of his holiness. Because we realize there is a problem. We realize that we are unholy. And rather than change ourselves, we strip God of his holiness and make him more like our friend. Or as many people have said before, like Jesus is my homie, that I can come and just join in and everything's all good. We strip him of his holiness. So rather than knowing God as holy and therefore necessarily confronting our own unholiness, we try to strip God of our holiness so that we can remain in our untransformed and ill-disciplined state. How easy it is for people to have a cavalier mindset toward God and his church from things like scrolling our phones during corporate worship, pastors up here behind the pulpit giving their comedy routine, or even as we've experienced over the last two years, many churches going toward online services. And then what do people do? Well, they, they, they tune in whenever they want. And when they do, they might rock up in their pajamas. They've got breakfast, a cup of tea they leave midway through to go make another snack or something like that even uh, partaking in gatherings with wine flowing it's just an irreverence this attitude treats god like a passive stepfather who's just trying to make sure that we're all okay rather than an authoritative, supremely powerful father who is the God of heaven and earth. We need a shock to our system to bring back the right level of reverence, the right fear of God within us. We need the kind of shock that Job had when after he was confronted by God, though he thought he knew God, finally he is confronted by God himself revealing him And Job says, I have uttered things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. This kind of reverence comes about when we behold the holiness of God. So this is what we are going to look at today. Five glimpses of God's holiness to bring about the right reverence within us. To be holy is to be set apart. So when God makes something holy, he consecrates it, which is to say he sets it apart. He separates it for his 
purpose. For example, things that were not holy, like the ground we walk on, all of a sudden, when God appears, either in uh, himself in some form or the angel of the Lord, when he appears, the ground then becomes holy. So God appears to Moses and says, the place where you are standing is holy ground. It is holy. I've set it apart for my purpose. So have a reverence about yourself. When we think of God's holiness, God being holy, it is saying that God is completely separate from all sin and imperfection. He is holy other. He is perfectly pure in his thoughts and actions. God's holiness is also not merely one of his attributes, but his holiness is also the fullness of his attributes since all that he is is holy. His name is holy. His love is a holy love. His wrath is a holy wrath. His mercy is a holy mercy. He is a holy God. Now, while we can make attempts at defining God's holiness in this way, there's always an element of incomprehensibility with God. Language amongst a finite people cannot do full justice to the holiness of an infinite God. This is why even biblical authors divinely inspired by the Spirit writing, when they have a, a vision of God's holiness or His glory, they are forced to continue to use all of these likes. So they say, well, it appeared like this, like a burning wheel of fire. He he looked like this. He had the appearance of something like this. We just can't adequately articulate the fullness of his holiness. So to better understand God's holiness today, I want us to look at these five glimpses of five different aspects of God's holiness throughout scripture. The first glimpse of God's holiness is his glorious majesty. In Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 5, this is a common passage when we think of God's holiness. It gives this beautiful picture of the Lord on his throne. So Isaiah says in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. In contrast to the earthly king Uzziah, who was quite a prominent and successful king, he reigned for over five decades, brought a lot of good until his uh, unfortunate fall in pridefulness. But before that, he brought a lot of good and uh, revival in a sense to the nation of Judah. And as he dies, and seemingly with him the hopes of the people, Isaiah here gets a glimpse of the true king, of the king of the universe, the Lord seated high and lifted up. The train of his robe covers the whole temple. It's to show the majesty. Uh, We don't often see this now, but royals might have a a long train of their robe, a king entering a palace, and God's robe fills the whole entire temple to show his majesty is, is infinite. 
And there are these seraphim, these creatures who fly around in his presence and they constantly cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Hebrew language is full of repetition to convey superlative, to convey emphasis. We have this in our language, like if we want to say something is good, we just say it's good. If we want to add a superlative or or emphasis, then we say it is very good. And in the Hebrew language, to do that, you would just use the same word and repeat it again. So in 1 Kings, it talks about uh, pure gold, and the literal translation is just gold, gold. So it's saying it's not just gold, but it's pure gold. It's like goldy gold, the goldest of gold. This is very common through Hebrew language. But here in Scripture, God has revealed the only characteristic of Him, His holiness, as a super superlative. Three times. Holy, holy, holy. Three is the number of fullness as well and completeness. It's showing this picture of this great holiness that cannot be over-exaggerated. It, 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 it's just impossible. You, you, you can't capture the fullness of it. Holy, holy, holy. He is so holy that even these sinless creatures who are in his presence, they are not fallen angels. They are angels who have not fallen and yet they... They cannot help but cover their face and their feet in this seeming shame. They cannot let him gaze upon them. And as he speaks, the whole place shakes. It trembles at his voice and fills with the smoke of his presence. This is a majestic vision. And although we can't fully comprehend it, the fullness of God's holiness, God allows us to taste through little appetizers throughout the world this picture of His holiness. Like the seraphim say, the whole earth is full of His glory. And God's glory is like God's holiness on display that captivates us. And so God sets His glory in the heavens so that we can taste a little appetizer of his splendor and majesty. Some of you may have seen a few weeks ago, NASA released these images of uh, outer space from the James Webb Telescope. And there was one particular image that uh, went viral. It was of the Corinna Nebula, which is this system of stars uh, 8,000 light years away. And the picture is just Uh, tremendous. It's captivating to think of a a place like the Corinna Nebula 8,000 light years away. Now, one light year is about 10 trillion kilometers. Now, you would have to travel around the entire world, the circumference of the world, 250 million times to travel one light year. If you travel around the world 250 million times and you count that as one lap, then if you do that 8,000 more times, 
you can get to the Carina Nebula. That is enough to make our brains explode and we have captured this image of it. Now imagine seeing the God who is outside of it all, who created all of it, who set the starry host one by one, seeing him seated high and exalted upon his throne. It would make all of the images that we have, like the Corinna Nebula, look like a pile of absolute rubbish. Rubbish. That's a combination of garbage and rubbish I just made up. It would make it look just terrible in comparison to the holiness of God. God's splendor is incomparable to all of the glorious sights that he has set for us from the Northern Lights to the Grand Canyon. His holiness is incomparable. Exodus 15, 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? There is nothing comparable to our holy God. And Isaiah here gets a glimpse, just a little glimpse of his holiness. And look at his reaction. It is enough to make him feel as though he is dying. He says, I'm I'm ruined. The word means he's, I'm cut off. Literally, I'm perishing. I can't stand. I couldn't stand before this holy God any longer. I can now see how impure and vile I am. And this is what God's holiness does. His splendor and majesty causes us to see how, how low we are. How impure and unworthy we are. This is what God's holiness does to us. This is our first glimpse of God's holiness to see his glorious majesty. The second glimpse is of his furious anger. This is in Numbers 16. In Numbers 16, we have this account of some Israelites who rebel against Moses and in rebelling against Moses, they are rebelling against God because Moses is God's appointed leader for the people of Israel. And these people rebel against Moses and therefore against God and God's wrath breaks out against them. He is angry with their sin. The basic situation is there are these three figures, Korah, Dathan and Abiram. And Korah comes from the Levitical tribe and he complains to Moses and says, Moses, why are you lording it over us? All of the congregation is holy. You shouldn't be the only one to tell us what to do. Korah's issue is that he believes Moses shouldn't be the only one asserting himself over everyone else. And then these other two guys, Dathan and Abiram from the tribe of Reuben, well, they simply complain that they want to go back to Egypt because Egypt was a much better land. And they say, Moses, why have you brought us into the wilderness? Where is this God who's going to bring us into a land flowing with milk and honey? We had that back in Egypt. Let's just go back. It's a complete rejection and rebellion of God against him. There is a clear irreverence and God's anger breaks out against them. God comes before them and he says to Moses and Aaron, right, set yourselves apart from the congregation. I am about to consume them. God is going to wipe out the congregation. 
Moses and Aaron in Christ-like mediation, they intercede so that the Lord does not wipe out the entire congregation. And God still comes to the rest of the congregation now and he says, okay, everyone else, get away from the dwellings of Korah and Dathan and Abiram, for I am about to consume them. And then as the people separate themselves, the earth opens up and they are swallowed into the ground. And all of the people, the families of Korah, Dathan and Abram, they perish. And amazingly, after witnessing this, you would think, after witnessing the kind of rebellion where Korah actually tries to incite the congregation against Moses, and then God shows his fury by swallowing them up in the ground, you would think after seeing that, there would be a reverence about them. Okay, we're going to do as God says now. No, they just complain to Moses. They say, Moses, you've killed everyone. And so God's wrath breaks out against them again through these plagues, which kill almost 15,000 of the people. And again, it is for this Christ-like intercession of Moses that the plague is stopped. God's holiness means that he is angry with sin. He is perfect in his holiness. Sin cannot come near him. And naturally, when sin comes near him, his wrath breaks out. It pushes back against it since no sin can come near a holy God. Psalm 5 says, You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers despite what we might think and certainly what the world likes to think, God is not a weak stepfather figure who we can be flippant and cavalier before. Certainly one whom we cannot complain against. He is a holy God whose wrath breaks out against sinful rebellion. The question is not, why does God punish sin? The question we should be asking is, why does God not punish more sin? Why does he allow for people in our city like Canberra, full of you and me type people, especially those who have not bowed the knee to God? Why does he allow us to continue experiencing all of this common grace that he gives to us? This beautiful world that he allows us to live in and enjoy the fruits without wiping us out since 98% of people here reject God. It is by his sheer mercy alone that all are not punished. But his mercy must not cause us to forget his burning holiness, which means he is angry against sin. Our third glimpse is of his transcendent imminence. To transcend something is to surpass a range or a limit. So something that is transcendent is beyond our capacity to understand. Or we say the gospel transcends culture because the gospel is good news for all people at all times in all places. It is not bound to a particular culture. It is not irrelevant for any particular culture. It is totally relevant for all people at all times in every place. God is transcendent in that he is eternal, infinite, uncreated. He exists outside of time while everything else has a beginning and an end. He simply is. 
While God is transcendent, he is also imminent. To be imminent is to be near or to exist within, to be internal. So God is imminent because he is near. God has actually entered into time and humanity in Christ, in Jesus. Through that, he has revealed himself to us in a way that is understandable. God is both transcendent and imminent. And a part of God's transcendence, a part of what makes him so incomprehensible, is that he is imminent. It is that he can actually be made known. This infinite God can be known by a finite people. God's transcendence is that he is imminent. It is astonishing how this infinite holy God can be so near and so present and so relatable to us. In Isaiah 57, 15, the Lord says, Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. In this passage, we see the same theme of splendor and exaltation. God is high and lifted up. He inhabits eternity. The infinite God dwells within this infinite dwelling. It's the only place he can dwell within eternity, something that is infinite. And yet God says, though I am high above everything else and I am perfectly holy, I also dwell with those of a contrite and lowly spirit. I'm near to the crushed and broken hearted. I'm near to the lowly people. We, of course, see this best in the life of Jesus, where our holy and majestic God enters into humanity in truly humble circumstances. He is born in a stable. The first people he appears to are shepherds, a lowly occupation. Who cares what a shepherd thinks? And yet our God enters into humanity, born in humble circumstances, appears to a shepherd. He grows as a boy, a teenager, as a man in seemingly humble circumstances as well. Just a carpenter's son in a little town of Nazareth. He then enters into his ministry. He is mocked. He is scorned. He is rejected. He suffers a humiliating death. There is no one on this earth who can say, God is too distant. God is too unknowable. No, the infinitely holy God has made himself known in Jesus. And he has done that in a particular way to show that he identifies with the lowest of the low. God is transcendently imminent. He is incomprehensible, yet he is so personal and so relatable. Our fourth glimpse is of his perfect knowledge. In Isaiah 40, 12 to 14, we read, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? This is showing a 
God who knows everything. No one can consult to Him. No one can teach Him. See, some people say God can do all things. And in one sense, it's right in the sense that all things are possible with God. But in another sense, it's not quite right to say God can do all things because God cannot do all things. God cannot do any wrong. God cannot lie since He is truth. God cannot learn since He knows everything perfectly. You cannot teach Him anything. He has the fullness of knowledge in Himself. A.W. Tozer says, God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters, all mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits, all being and every being, all creaturehood, all creatures, every plurality and all pluralities, all law and every law, all relations, causes, thoughts, mysteries, enigmas, feeling, desires, every unuttered secret, every throne and dominion, all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and in earth, motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven and hell. He knows everything. He knows it all in perfect understanding. God has never been perplexed. He has never been driven to anxiety because of uncertainty, because of unknown. He knows everything in perfect fullness. Job was confronted with this knowledge when God finally appeared before him. We know the life of Job, a, a, a righteous man who then has his life basically fall apart as God allows Satan to destroy his family, his health, his livelihood. And Job begins to complain toward God in places. Although Job thought he knew God, God then right at the very end through chapters 38 to 42, God gives Job this glimpse into his inexhaustible, infinite knowledge where God begins to question Job, showing his knowledge. So God says, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me the measurements of this planet. Do you know the ordinances of heaven? Can you establish their rule on earth? Do you know how the heavens work? Do you know all these planets that I set one by one into existence? Do you know every single beast of the earth and how they were made? And God gives over 70 of these questions. He gives half of them and Job's response to the first half is, Oh, I'm of small account. What shall I answer you? I hold my hand over my mouth. I'm not going to talk anymore. And then God gives more of these questions and Job finally says, Okay, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things far too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I don't know anything. God's perfect knowledge leaves us in this place of hand over mouth or lastly our last glimpse at God's holiness his universal dominance universal dominance throughout the book of Revelation we get this beautiful picture of God's sovereignty over all things the book of Revelation is here to show God's absolute supremacy over everything so that even though there's this cosmic battle going on always History is simply moving forward through all of these seals, trumpets, and bowls in this circular way 
toward the day when Christ's complete victory will be realized. It is a comforting book. And in Revelation 19, we get this picture of the risen and glorified Christ returning to finally conquer and dominate all things. Just listen to this description that the Apostle John gives of the risen and glorified Christ in this picture of him returning to claim what is his. From verse 11 of Revelation 19, John says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. See the picture of God's holiness as Christ returns to claim what is his. His eyes are like flames of fire, eyes which pierce through our souls to leave nothing hidden the same way that fire sweeps through bushland and lays everything bare. Christ's eyes are those of a divine judge returning to cast down his judgment where nothing will be hidden. The diadems represent his majesty as a ruler over all and it is a direct contrast to the false diadems that we see in the rest of Revelation of the beast and the dragon that portray this image of of kings, earthly kings, and behind them lie the authority of the beast and the dragon. But really, they are false authorities. The true authority is with Christ himself. He alone carries supreme rule. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and thigh is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He has universal dominance. Is this the picture of Jesus that you see? It is certainly not the picture that the world likes to paint. While the world likes to paint this picture of Jesus as either irrelevant or at best having this weak smile, just hoping everyone gets along, we have this picture here of Christ's supreme dominance. The picture is one of a holy God who is not returning to forgive. He has already offered his forgiveness and to this day his forgiveness is still there on the table. But when he returns, it is off. He is coming to punish those who have not bowed their knee before him. He is coming to completely abolish every bit of evil and bring every sin that has not been covered by his blood into judgment. He has universal dominance. These five glimpses of God's holiness that we see today, they are not exhaustive. There is much more that we could say, but these are surely enough to strike a reverence and a humility within us. Fear and trembling is the right response to God's holiness. His holiness leads to a lowliness within us, to a Job-like hand over mouth awe. But we take great comfort, those of us who have trusted in 
Christ who bow before this holy God. We take great comfort in God's very own words which say, Though I dwell with the high, though I dwell in the high and holy place, I also dwell with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. A broken and contrite heart, God will never despise. Lowliness is our safe place because that is the place where God in his mercy comes sweeping in to comfort us. He will resist the prideful, but to the humble who have been humbled before his holiness. That is the safe place and growing deeper in God's holiness drives us there.